So one of our teams went south to Puerto Rico, and the other team went north, and you guys held the center, right? We had a great trip. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for sending us, and more to come. on. If you want to go uh, with us to Puerto Rico, we'll be going probably twice a year to continue to help them really get off the ground. We'd love to talk with you about that. I wish that somehow we could bottle it, just bottle the whole mission week experience. There's just no way to convey to you how significant it is, both to them and to us. So I really want to encourage you. If you've never um, dedicated a week of your life to short-term missions, set aside some vacation time, find out a way to go. I really think you will be the better for it. It's so good to go and serve and, and do for others and to help and, and really to do it for the glory of Christ. And John chapter 8. It's been a while since we've been in John 8. So let me catch you up. We want to think today about living for God's glory. Living for God's glory. We were made for glory. Nothing less will satisfy us. We, we, were, we were made for glory. We crave it. Uh, like the needle of a compass that just keeps getting pulled back to north, we, we long for, desire. Um, we look for it, and when we find it, we love it. We were made to look for and to love glory. We, uh, someone has called it a glory instinct, that inside of each of us, we have an instinct for glory. We're drawn to it. We, once we taste it, we want more and more. So you have a choice to make. Every time you find yourself in a beautiful glory moment, standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or a sunrise at the Outer Banks or floating in a lagoon in the Caribbean after a long day of mission work, um, in every beautiful glory moment, you have to decide whether or not you're going to possess it and cling to it and have it for yourself, the tempter said to Jesus, all this could be yours. Or whether you will give that glory back to the one from whom it came. Whether or not your life and your most amazing glory experiences will resound back to God himself. You have to decide that. Every time you experience something amazing, you have this sort of moment where you have to decide who made this whole thing and who gets to keep it. Will I cling to it as my, my precious? Or will I say, Jesus, Lord, Thank you for this amazing moment, standing in the middle of your glory moment. God, you are worthy of all glory. So what I'm saying to you is you were made to feast on glory. You were made to feast on praise and fame, but not your own, someone else's. We were made for the glory of the triune God. We were made by him and for him. And you will never be happier or more satisfied than when, just like Jesus, you discover how to live for the glory of God alone. 
That's the most important, uh, that's one of, rather, that's one of the most important things we can learn from our study in John's gospel, that Jesus lives for the glory of God. You'll see this over and over again in his gospel, uh, in John. You'll see it from the very beginning, right? He's full of grace and truth, John says, and we beheld his glory. And you see it all the way at the end, because in John's gospel, the glory of the creator is also the glory of the God who dies. And Jesus is glorified in his death. And all throughout, from beginning to end, Jesus is helping us to discover how to live for the glory of God alone. So whether you eat or drink, talk or text, buy or sell, give or take, work or rest, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what we're learning from Christ. So there's three things that I'm learning from Jesus in this passage that I I hope you will embrace with me. Three things that, that I think will help you follow Christ more faithfully this week. Number one, I will not seek my own glory. Number two, I will not live for the approval of man. Number three, I will stake my life on knowing the Father and living in delightful obedience to him. I will not seek my own glory. I will not live for the approval of man, but I will stake my life on knowing God. That's what Jesus did. Let's think about those in turn. Number one, so I will not seek my own glory. Look at verse 50. This is, this is so good. Yeah, I said I was going to catch you up on where we are in John's gospel. So as you come to verse 49, we've been in chapter, we were in chapter 8 a few weeks ago. Uh, thank you to Vince for covering for me last week, and we fast-forwarded to chapter 9 last week, and now we're back to the end of chapter 8. Thanks for your patience and all that. Hopefully these messages are making sense, even though we've kind of moved some things around. So... Uh, As we drop back into chapter 8, verse 49, verses 48 and 49, the Jews answered him. What's happening here is there's this intense um, exchange between the Jews and Jesus. And this exchange, the tension has been building in this exchange. Um, and, And the exchange is about who's telling the truth. Jesus is claiming Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. The Jews are claiming to know Abraham and have a relationship with Abraham. Somebody's not telling the truth. Jesus says in verse 49, or they, they say in verse 48 rather, they answer him. And they say, are, are, we, we think you're, they throw a little ethnic slur at him. Man, you're like a Samaritan. Are you, this kind of a racial slur. Um, are, you're, you're a Samaritan. No, worse than that. You must have a demon. You must be demon-possessed. Jesus answers verse 49. I do not have a demon, but I honor, read, I glorify my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, now, I want you to just take that sentence and just, just let it soak in for a minute. Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. In the Bible, we learn that no person should ever seek or keep his own glory. No one. 
Not even Jesus seeks his own glory. The ultimate image bearer on whom the glory of God rests. And he won't seek his own glory. And what makes him such a great example in this is that he's actually worthy of glory. He's worthy of worship and praise, honor and fame. Yet he will not pursue it for himself. He will not exalt himself. I will not, I mean, and this is an intense moment, right? The tension has been building and building and building. At the moment when you would sort of expect Jesus to throw down some glory and shut them up, because he really could have pretty easily, he doesn't. He says, I, I, don't, I don't need that from you. I don't seek my own glory. There's a gospel principle that runs from beginning to end in John's gospel and through the whole life of Jesus and in all the other gospels and really through the whole Bible. And that principle is this. I will not exalt myself. I will not promote my own fame and honor. I will not seek to make my own name great. I will not seek glory for myself. I will not keep building my resume, keep promoting myself, keep sending the signal around that I got this and I got that and I'm good at this and I'm good at that. I will not exalt myself. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and mercy to the humble. Jesus is the embodiment of that. The person who's most worthy of exaltation will not seek his own glory. That's an amazing gospel principle. It's completely the opposite of what the world will teach you and what the world believes. How often do you find yourself promoting yourself, defending yourself, explaining yourself, over-explaining yourself, justifying and having to explain everything as we walk through every moment? How often does that happen to us? Does that happen to you? You know what that might reflect? That you're protecting something. That I when I do that, and protecting my own glory. Jesus says, let it go. Because when Jesus leads you to this discovery, a discovery to which only the gospel can bring you, that you were made for glory but not your own, you will start to experience freedom in your life that you've never known before. I don't have to, it's okay if I'm misunderstood. I don't have to explain that. I don't have to have the last word. You were made for glory. I want you to hear that this morning. You were made for a deep, profound glory experience. It's just not about you. It's about the God who made you. So he makes you, puts his image-bearing dignity and honor and glory on you, and then you refract or resound or echo that back toward him. It's, ne it's never ours to keep. Jesus understood this beyond all people who ever lived. So he says this great sentence that you should write on the tablet of your heart, I do not seek my own glory. I will not seek my own glory. Do you remember Philippians chapter 2 where Paul has got this great word of instruction right in the middle of the book of Philippians, and he's saying to the people of, of God in Philippi, uh, I want you to look out for each other, and I want you to be more concerned in the other person. Be more interested in the other person. Look out for his interest more so than yourself. Demonstrate humility in this way because, and then he goes into this great 
beautiful poetic description of Christ because Jesus himself, though he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, did not cling to that, but made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, emptied himself, came in the form of a man, and then lived life and died a horrible death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name so that the name of Jesus, everybody in heaven and on earth, would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what end? To the, to the glory of God the Father is how it ends. Jesus is the embodiment of this gospel principle, I will not exalt myself. I will not promote myself. Tim Keller's got this great explanation of gospel humility, and he says, he says it this way. Keller says, gospel humility is not needing to think about yourself, not needing to connect things with myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation, everything with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It's what he calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed shalom and rest that can only come through that kind of self-forgetfulness. This is not just about an exchange between Jesus and the Jews. This is about glory. This is about people who want glory for themselves. Jesus says, I'm not going to glorify myself. Look at, verse four, look at verse 54. Look at this. Jesus answered again, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. How can he say that? I mean, he's worthy of glory. So, the first thing we learn from Christ is that we should never seek our own glory. And yet that, we've got this constant pull. So what do we do? We, we say, God, and, and, and by the way, just note to self, try not to say, this is not for my glory, this is for the Lord's glory. Try not to say that phrase. We do it, we do it. But just, just try not to, you know. If you watch, if you listen, if you start paying more close attention to your own life, you're going to see these sneaky little ways that people who've been believers for a long time can get and keep glory for themselves. Now, I, it's not my job to show that to you. It's the Spirit of God's job to show that to you. But he's showing it to me. And I want to invite you to look for that and turn away from self-glory. Here's the second thing. This is, so, this is so liberating. Again, it's in verse 50. I will not live for the approval of man. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Look at this. Jesus can truly say that he glorifies the Father and not himself only if he can also truly say that the Father's approval is what matters most to him. 
In other words, he doesn't live for the glory of man. He will not live for the approval of man or the endorsement of man or the admiration of man. Ultimately, what other people think of him does not matter. What God the Father thinks of him is everything. And what's so amazing and beautiful about the gospel is once you get in Christ, once you get in him, and you've, you, you experience the gospel, and you're made new, and you're now standing in Christ. You're not standing in your own works. You're not standing in your own goodness. You're not standing in your own religious uh, attempts, but you're standing in Christ. And once you're in Christ, you get the Father's approval, wholehearted approval from the Father. So you have a completely new identity. Like It doesn't matter what the girls think of you. It doesn't matter what the boys think of you. It doesn't matter what everybody who you think is so important that they think a certain way about you. It doesn't, those, things don't, those things don't matter anymore. The only judgment that really matters to Jesus in this moment here in John 8 is the loving, righteous judgment of God the Father. Does God the Father know what is true? Yes. Whatever the Father thinks about him and his mission is what matters most to him. That doesn't mean you don't care about what other people think. There's an old country music song that says, I don't give a darn what other people think. You know what I'm talking about? What do you think about that? You know, you know what song? I know Casey knows it. <laughs> Casey's going to be singing it for the rest of the service. Isn't Sorry about that. This, this is not really that. This is a different reason for not caring about what other people think. This is actually, this is caring, this is caring about what the most important person in the world thinks about you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the most important thing that you can know about me and my ministry as an apostle is that I want to be faithful to God. I think he picked that up from Jesus somewhere along the way. So he says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'll never be acquitted by your judgment or my own judgment. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is so suspicious about us judging one another and about his own judgment of himself that he says, man, I need to live in light of the judgment of God. If I will live in light of the judgment of God, it's not that due process and due diligence and earthly judgments don't matter. They can, in fact, have a place, and, and I think Paul thinks that they do. But what he's saying is that in comparison, really the last person that I'm concerned about is my own judgment of myself or yours. I ultimately need to be most concerned about what God thinks about me. And if I get right what the Lord is doing to judge me, the rest of those things will fall into place. I might even be misunderstood. I may try and correct that. As much as possible, he will later say in Romans 12, as much as possible as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Figure out how to communicate and make it right with all people. But don't live under that judgment. Live under the judgment of the Lord himself. I will not live for the approval of man. So I think what Paul's teaching us there and what Jesus is modeling for us here is I will not, I will not let people get so big in my life that God becomes small. 
Ed Welch talks about being free from the fear of man and the approval of man in his book by that title, When People Are Big and God is Small. He's got a few questions for you this morning. He was here with us for a few weeks back, and uh, he's got a few questions. He's back today, so he's got a few questions for you. As you think about the approval of man, let me, let me roll out a few Ed Welch questions for you. Are you overcommitted? Is it hard to say no, even when wisdom says you should decline? Is it, is it being a people pleaser that's driving you? Do you need something? Here's another question. Do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you, respect you, meet your needs? Think carefully here, he says. Certainly God is pleased when there is good communication and mutual honor and respect and love between spouses. But for many people, the desire for these things has roots in something that's far from God's design. Unless you understand the biblical parameters of marital commitment, your spouse could become the one you fear. Your spouse could control you. Your spouse could quietly take the place of God in your life. Or, he talks to business men and women. He says, do you ever feel like that you might be exposed as an imposter? Many business executives, apparently successful people, feel this way. They have a sense of being exposed, as, and it's an expression of the fear of man. The, what will happen if I'm found out? I don't know. This is not, for me, it was, it's been more sort of academic driven. But have I shared with you my recurring nightmare? where I, my high school transcript is actually defunct, uh, illegitimate. I didn't pass several classes, which therefore makes my undergraduate degree null and void, which therefore makes my master's degree null and void, which therefore makes me an utter fa failure, right? I mean, this dream, have you ever had any dreams like this? No, it's just you, Pete. <laughs> You're the problem. We have, like, vocational dreams and academic aspirations and also all sorts of man we're so deeply broken do you ever fig, do you ever sense do you ever have you ever have this fear that you might one day be found out to really be an imposter like you're fake what is that it's the fear of man Look, I'm telling you, somewhere, if I haven't hit you yet this morning, somewhere in your life, there is a fear of man thing at work. Uh, Welch goes on to say, are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people think? Or do you get easily embarrassed? Do you exalt the opinions of others to the point that you're ruled by their opinions of you? Do you sometimes lie? Or just sort of, just work it a little bit so that you appear to be better than you really are. Come on now, help me out here. You know what that is? That's the fear of man. That's longing for approval that you should get somewhere else. Listen, you and I are longing for approval. We're longing for an approval that we should get from somewhere else. Where should we get our ultimate approval? Where should we get our ultimate sense of love and hope and approval? We should get it from God himself, not from each other, 
And that doesn't mean we don't love each other. We don't give and receive affection. And, and, but, but the right order of the affections is so important. Because if I, if I disorder my affections in such a way that I love these other people or things or appearances more so than God himself, man, I'm going to live a very confused life. And I, I can't live that way. You can't live that way. I love this. Jesus says in verse 50, I'm not seeking my own glory because there is one who seeks it, and I'm confident in that. He is the judge. I will let God be the judge of whether or not you like me or understand me or see what you should see. I will not seek my own glory. So two things that Christians know for sure at this point. We should not seek our own glory. We should not live for the approval of man. Third, let me state the final point positively. I, but I will live this way. I will stake my life on knowing God and living in delightful obedience to him. That's what I'm going to stake my life on. I'm going to stake my life, verse 55, on what Jesus stakes his life on. Verse 55, um, you have not known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know God, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. All right, take that phrase. I know him and I keep his word. I, I'm, I know the Father and I'm walking in delightful obedience to his word. Simply put, This is the beauty of the Christian life. It's the heart of the Christian life. What a great way to summarize the Christian life. What is Christianity? To know God in and through his Son and by his Spirit. To know God and to walk in delightful obedience to him. Sometimes it's a dutiful obedience. Sometimes it's an obligatory obedience. And duty and obligation can get you up in the morning. But morality will never save you. And obligation will never save you. There is a delightful obedience that flows out of a relationship with God. That's why Jesus says, I know him, I know him, and I delight to do what he wants me to do. I don't do it because I have to do it. I want to do it. And this is just a beautiful explanation of the Christian life, to know God and walk closely with him. Do you know the Lord personally today? Do you know the Lord personally? Can can you say, "I, I know God. I want to know him. I want to keep his word, to know God and to want to walk in delightful obedience to him. I got to hit a couple other things before we close. Verse 56. This whole debate and exchange has been centering on Abraham and Abraham as a qualifier for who's telling the truth. So Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. 
Jesus is saying, let, let me clarify something for you about how Abraham and I connect. Abraham was looking forward and got a vision from the Lord about hoping in the Messiah. He was hoping in me, Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that his faith was accounted to him for righteousness, not because it was his own righteousness, but because he had faith in a promised Messiah who was coming. He rejoiced to see my day and and was glad. His hope was not in his own self. His hope was not in perfecting himself and, and pulling himself up by his own bootstraps and living perfectly. No, Abraham's hope and faith was in a coming Messiah. In Galatians, Paul even says the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Jesus may be referring to the whole life of Abraham's, Abraham's whole life of faith, his confidence and trust in the Lord, or maybe he has the promise of Isaac in mind from which all the nations would one day be blessed through another promised son himself the Messiah. Either way, though, what Jesus is saying here is that Abraham, all of Abraham's hope and joy was aimed at and fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And that joyful hope that Abraham had stands in stark contrast to the cynical, unbelieving rejection of these so-called children of Abraham right here, who claim to be a people of faith. So the Jews said to him, what? You're not even, you're, you're in your early 30s. You're not even 50 years old. How do you know, how have you seen Abraham? How has he seen you? For them, Jesus' doubling down turns into absurdity. They're like, what are you talking about? This is absurd. Now, Jesus throws the ace of spades. Watch this. Verse 58, Jesus says to them, I'm telling you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, it would have been easier for him to say, before Abraham was, I was, right? Grammatically and in terms of conversation, it would have been much easier for him to say, before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was born, I was born. But the eternal Son of God can't say I was born because he wasn't born, because he always existed in eternity past. So he says, before Abraham was, I am. And when he uses those words, no doubt the Jews called to mind the promise of God to Moses, who in Exodus 3 is told, "Uh, what do I say to them, God, when I go to them to be this deliverer guy you're talking about? God in that moment at the burning bush says, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Tell them the eternal, self-existent God of the whole universe is about to deliver his people, and I'm going to use you to do it. Tell them I am sent you. No doubt, they know exactly what Jesus is headed for. Like when he says I am, and so that really seals the deal. So they, verse 59, pick up stones and seek to kill this blasphemer who's directly identified himself with God. You just don't do that. So, Jesus teaches me 
I will not seek my own glory. I will not live for the approval of man. But I will, listen, I will stake my life on knowing God and letting him, and walking in faithful obedience to him, and letting him judge my life. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to remind you that this table is a table of glory. It's a table about glory. It's a table about glory and grace, and Jesus is on his way in the Gospel of John. We've said this before. We'll keep saying it through the rest of our study. He's on his way to this, what what no one else in the world would think is a moment of glory, but he does, and the Father does, the cross. The cross is going to be Jesus. The cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is going to be the great moment of glory in the Gospel of John. This table is a, is a display, it's a reminder, it's a, um, a rehearsal of the glory of God to us in Jesus Christ. So, as you prepare your hearts for the Lord's table, let me just remind you that this is for believers, believers who have confessed their faith through baptism. Uh, If you have not confessed your faith through baptism, we would encourage you to let the elements pass by. Um, But if you have, and you are actively trusting in the Lord, uh, and you're comfortable receiving communion, then you should take it. And we pray and hope that this would be a, a moment where you... So here's, here's what I want to ask you to do. Prepare your hearts by doing three things. Turn away from self-glory. Just ask the Lord to help you see ways that only he can help you see that you have been sneaking some glory for yourself. Secondly, turn away from the approval of others. You don't have to have it. You don't need it. Third, determine and pledge yourself to live for God, to know Him, to walk in delightful obedience. Just take a moment and prepare your heart for the Lord's table while our men come and serve.